Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Axiom, a recognized leader in the business of law. Axiom provides tech-enabled legal contracts and compliance solutions for large enterprises. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and we're excited to announce that our audio-based 12-session business development challenge will be available on October 1st. 12 practical execution-oriented steps to predictable business development success. Go to leftfoot.com for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest was a partner at Cleary Gottlieb, served as SVP and Associate General Counsel at the Hartford Financial Services Group, and until June 30th of 2017 as EVP and General Counsel to MetLife. He is currently serving as Special Counsel to MetLife's CEO through the remainder of 2017. Ricardo and Zaldua, welcome to Left Foot. Thank you very much, Nicole. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Ricardo. Let's jump into our questions. You've been a general counsel now at two major organizations. What personal strengths or habits allowed you to be successful transitioning from a firm to an in-house counsel GC role? Well, I think the main thing, Nicole, is focus, energy, clarity of thought and communication, and strategic vision. I think those are the really key elements that are universally required for a very effective general counsel. The energy element is crucial. The ability to communicate clearly, succinctly, and with energy and conviction to all different kinds of stakeholders is also crucial. And understanding the strategic vision for the business and incorporating legal knowledge into that strategic vision is really what the general counsel brings to the C-suite. That we hear having a good sense of the business and understanding the business, whether they're in-house or at a firm coming in is so important. Are you a believer that most lawyers should seek either an MBA or some kind of formal business education if they are working in a corporate environment? I don't think that the formal education is really that critical, Nicole. It is absolutely essential that the lawyer understand the business and understand the business priorities, its vision, and its direction. Many business are quite complicated and that requires a good amount of study in order to understand the nuance of the business and what are the key elements. For example, in insurance, many people don't understand the core machine of the business consists of managing assets. And I think it's very important for people to understand that. Great point, you know, the business side of it, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to talk about what's happened, the changing market conditions, the fact that the legal landscape is more competitive today than it was previously. It's really change. There's a lot of focus on price. There's a lot of focus on efficiency and technology. But before we go there, when organizations come in, as you know, our listeners are lawyers. They're listening to our program to hear how other lawyers have developed their business or how general counsel, in-house counsel are buying legal services today. What do those parties that are coming in and bidding on your business, pitching on your business, what do they do well? Or what would you consider table stakes to actually be sitting across the table from an organization like MetLife? Well, Nicole, it's important for an outside counsel to recognize, especially when they're going to work for a big company with a large legal organization, they're being hired because the legal organization does not have the resources internally to do the assignment that the law firm is being hired for. So what does that mean? That means that the law firm needs to be bringing a certain kind of expertise and it needs to bring creativity to the assignment 
assignment. It needs to bring the ability to analyze in ways that the internal legal department can't do. And that in turn implies that the client is going to require diversity of perspective, some diversity of thought, some new ways of looking at issues that the in-house law department can't provide. So those attributes are critical to the engagement itself. Besides that, what I talked about before is also absolutely critical. In order for the law firm to bring a practical focus, the law firm needs to understand the business. They need to understand what the objective of the assignment is, what the vision of the business is. And then finally, they need to be able to communicate effectively with a number of different stakeholders. The inside lawyer is, of course, an important contact for them, but very often they also need to communicate with business people. And that requires that same kind of clear, crisp, succinct communication in business English and not legalese. Thank you. That's terrific feedback or points for our listeners. Let me ask, we hear a lot from in-house counsel that they would prefer that the lawyers that they're bringing in from the firms that they've partnered with are communicating using business terms and not legal terms. Because even though they're working with in-house counsel, all of whom are lawyers, those lawyers are having to recreate materials provided by outside counsel in a way that the business can understand. Is it your philosophy, your, have you implemented either here at MetLife or at the Hartford a philosophy that said outside lawyers need to be communicating directly to our business and providing the materials on a particular matter in a way that a business person can understand? Is that part of a standard you've put in place or is that an assumption? It's part of an expectation that I try to have our inside lawyers communicate to all of our outside counsel. In the first instance, this is a requirement that I have imposed on our inside lawyers to learn how to communicate, to get out of their own intellectual way and communicate to the business in a way that's quite clear, understandable for the business and lays out legal issues, legal risks, and allows the business to make business decisions about whether to assume risks or not to assume risks. Then I want my inside lawyers to be giving those same kinds of instructions to our outside counsel so that we can have dialogue dialogues that actually build up the muscle of doing this kind of uh, communication with our business stakeholders all the time. It's great to hear that that is part of your organization. Do you have formal legal operations in-house and or legal purchasing at this point at MetLife? We do. Our legal affairs organization has its own operations function. There's a lot of work being done inside the organization on the software, on the file management, on all of the different technologies technologies that are necessary in order to support the lawyers. That is a big part of our legal affairs organization. Great work being done, building efficiencies and implementing technology and partnering with legal service providers. All of those firms, whether it's a legal technology company, a project management company, uh, a law firm, one of the many law firms you use here at MetLife or you had the opportunity to partner with at the Hartford. Can you reflect on an experience where an organization came in and did all the right things to earn your business? And of course, if that story continues and said they did all the right things to continue to have your business, some great clients 
client retention activities, that would be terrific. Well, I guess the story that I would share is actually a pretty unique story, but it's the story of how we assembled the team of consultants to advise MetLife on its designation as a systemically important financial institution. So that was the designation as a too-big-to-fail company under the Dodd-Frank Act, and we actually put together a coordinated group of more than half a dozen outside consultants, including three law firms, a financial econometrics consultant, a consumer research consultant, a communications consultant, and then an entity that was expert in financial services regulation to really just kind of give us a perspective on the lay of the land in Washington. And it was putting that team together early on, even before the process of being designated had begun. We knew that we were going to go into the process and we had a conviction that this process was going to result in the designation of MetLife. No matter what information we put in front of these regulators, they were going to designate us. And so we began the process right from the first day with the litigation team in place, the regulatory teams in place, the lobbying teams in place, the communications teams, because we knew that we were going to end up in front of a court and we wanted the case to be clear for the court. And so what all of these people did together was create a coordinated group that actually was very accustomed to working with each other, that had really developed sharp communication skills. We got entirely rid of all of the jargon and we became very clear in role division and role responsibility. So it was an amazing team. And as you probably know, the the outcome was that we won that litigation. We're the only company to have challenged its designation as a too big to fail institution. And we won that case in the federal district court in Washington, D.C. And now a word from our sponsor. Axiom Solutions combine legal experience, technology, and data analytics to deliver work in a way that dramatically reduces risk, cost, and cycle time. With over 1,200 lawyers and 2,000 plus employees across three continents, we experience a nerdy excitement from improving the way legal, compliance, and contracts work is done. For more information, go to axiomlaw.com. Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you to our 31,000 podcast listeners. Are you looking to refresh your business development efforts? The Left Foot 12 Session Business Development Challenge will refresh your efforts in three areas. Business development grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to leftfoot.com. We're talking to a number of litigators. The common thing we're hearing Even though they're litigators, one of the reasons they're successful is they're more down-to-earth people. Do you feel that that is a common thing among litigators is that they're more people people and they're more down-to-earth and they're more able to understand business issues and then translate those in a way that non-corporate lawyers can understand? Well, as a corporate transactional lawyer, I would say no, they're not more down-to-earth people than transactional lawyers. But I do think that they have greater command of the skill of communicating clearly 
clearly and simply with their clients and other stakeholders. It is part and parcel of their skill, part of their practice and their craft to be able to communicate with many different kinds of constituencies. And because of that, I think that uh, litigators do as a general rule, find it easier to relate to many different kinds of people, perhaps, than uh, transactional lawyers do. Ricardo, you know our listeners are tuning in. They're lawyers, they're partners, they're 80% domestic, 20% non-domestic. They're tuning in because they are either new to being a partner and growing their business or they're in transition. As they're going through a transition, I want to learn a new way of going out and acquiring clients. Any advice you'd give to those new partners, those transitioning partners about how to approach an organization for business, anything that you found helpful as you were growing your business at Cleary? And of course, you know, anything you've witnessed since you've been here at MetLife or when you're at the Hartford. I will say that from my personal experience, the most extraordinary illuminating moment in my career was actually when I left the firm and went in-house. And I really came to understand how the client looks at the assignment, how the client understands the objective and how the client actually works as an institution. And I think that that would be the most valuable thing for law firm partners to do if they haven't already done it at some point in their career to actually have an experience in-house, actually spend six months or a year inside a law department and really understand how the law department engages outside counsel, how it thinks about outside counsel, how it manages them and what it needs from the outside counsel. Aside from that, I would say the next most important thing for a law firm partner to be thinking about is adaptability and flexibility. You mentioned before that we're in a market conjuncture that is quite different than anything the legal profession has experienced in the past. We're having strong demands for efficiency, for flexibility, for adaptability. And law firm partners at this point in the evolution of the business of law really need to be thinking about how to make themselves as efficient and flexible and effective as they can be, in part by not engaging in activities that are really not properly engaged in by lawyers, looking for the parts of the work that they've been asked to do that are really more effectively done by someone else and not taking assignments that they're not capable of discharging. That's a great point. And we we do hear that by not pitching on a piece of business where it's not their specialty, that they really can focus and really develop a niche or a power niche, looking at a specialty and becoming well-known associated with that specialty. Being the best in the business is a great way to approach it. How about legal tech? Are you a fan, not a fan, artificial intelligence, using data, e-discovery to look at trends Especially when you're dealing with a case that is a bet the firm case, you look for every single bit of data that you can find, lots and lots of analysis. It really is no longer a question of being a fan or not a fan of legal tech. This is a transformation that is taking place and it's accelerating in its pace. Nobody who is operating a legal organization really has the option of avoiding legal tech. It's here, it's with us, and we need to figure out how to adapt it to make our own organizations as effective as they can be, given the reality of growing technology resources for any number of things, including artificial intelligence, because there are many things that lawyers do that are quite 
quite repetitive and they're quite formulaic. And even though doing those things is how we learn to become lawyers, I think that those things are activities that clients are no longer going to pay for. So we need to figure out how to adapt the profession to this changing landscape. Thank you. And we are hearing some great work being done at different organizations. Harvard Law School, their executive education program is really doing a lot to say, okay, what work should an associate be doing today? And possibly the associates should be taking some of the lead on legal tech and working with the outside legal service providers where they're comfortable because it's technology-based and where they can have an impact even though they're not doing the traditional work that an associate did. That said, changing market conditions, when you're allocating out dollars, what has changed? What has changed during your time since 2007? What has changed in the way you're allocating? Well, I would say that the fundamental change is that we now have procurement and procurement-like activities involved in the selection of outside counsel. In my experience, the days when individual lawyers engaged the outside counsel that they wanted to engage and paid whatever price they negotiated between themselves and the firm, those days are gone. Now, we have to have a broad market perspective, what legal services are available, what legal services are required for the particular assignment, and what price the company is going to pay for those legal services. So now we have systems, we now have management structures oversee the selection of outside counsel, and I believe that virtually all companies will be in this modality by the end of the decade. We're hearing things as uh, significant as basically asking each firm bidding on a matter to present an outcome potential outcome. Alan Bryan from Walmart, who's an associate general counsel there, said that for every matter, any larger matter, the firm's bidding present an outcome and then outline the first few steps. And there's some if this, then that uh, situation. And they actually agree to settle in some of those cases based on what they get back from those firms bidding on the business. So it seems to be part of the trend that we're going towards. You and I are here today, thank you, because of a panel you participated on at Legal Week here in New York. And you spoke, there were a number of people on that panel, and it was on the topic of diversity and having diversity in firms. And two, two questions around that. First, I know you're an advocate of having diverse teams presented to your organization by the firms you're working with. One question on how you drive that from in-house. Many of the listeners have probably heard that we've put a lot of resources into developing a project and an approach towards diversity, which at MetLife we call talent stewardship. It is what we understand in the market and commonly known as sponsorship. The idea behind this is an outgrowth of my experience working as an advocate of diversity in the legal profession for the past 25 plus years. In the 1990s, we experienced a dramatic sea change in the way that lawyers were recruited and brought into law firms and other legal organizations. By the early to mid-1990s, virtually all institutions were recruiting classes that were at least 50% female. Uh, and over the course of the following 10 to 15 years, they started recruiting classes that included people of color at the rate of 20 to 25%. When we accomplished that, we felt like we had really taken the step that was going to diversify our profession. However, we've learned in the years that followed that even though we bring diversity into the 
intake portion of the legal profession, the advancement, the retention and the promotion of diverse talent within legal institutions, firms and otherwise, is not a foregone conclusion. I and many others have spent a long time reflecting, trying to understand. I was a partner at a law firm and I watched the process of retention and promotion of talent based on those experiences, based on a lot of objective research and based on a lot of experiences of other people. We came to the conclusion that what's happened is that the apparatus of sponsorship, which is the sine qua non of advancement within any institution, legal or otherwise, sponsorship is the apparatus that the institutions use in order to retain and elevate talent within the organization. And the interplay between that and the phenomenon of unconscious bias has persuaded me that what's happened is that even though we bring in very diverse populations into our profession, we end up with a profession that looks very much like the profession as it existed previously because we don't do anything to interrupt the unconscious biases of those who are senior in the profession. So at MetLife, we created an institution called Talent Stewardship, and we deliberately introduce a selection for high potential talent that's designed to defeat unconscious biases. The way that we do it is that we use survey data. We survey many, many different stakeholders of the services of every single junior legal professional in the organization. And we discovered that by using that system of survey and very objectively gathering information, not only from managers, but also from the stakeholders, the business partners, from peers, from subordinates, and from other people within the organization. We discovered that we identified top talent within the organization that very closely reflected the general demographics of the organization. We made all of the documentation around the process. We made it available to our outside counsel. They can copy our plan, they can adapt our plan, or they can invent their own plan. In this program, when you looked at the data, what was missing previously that you got from those surveys? Was it the fact that the diverse candidates were communicating very well with the businesses, with their peers, with subordinates, with you know people on teams, but they weren't being recognized just because of that blind bias? Was that the most significant thing? Or was it just a lack of understanding on the people who were selecting those for promotion? I think there's a combination of things, but the first fundamental element is that we actually just introduced a systematic process. We just said, okay, we need to be thoughtful about how people are selected to become part of our future leadership pipeline. Instead of just letting it happen and letting influentials within the department figure out who they were going to advance, we said, we're going to do this in a conscious and strategic way, and we're going to involve everyone in figuring out who are the best people. And the reason that we had to do that was we were experiencing a phenomenon that's very similar to what the law firms experience. Talented, diverse professionals were leaving the organization because nobody was telling them that they were really top talent. Nobody was letting them know that they had a future in the leadership of the organization. And I think this is a broad-based phenomenon that the profession doesn't let people know when they're valued. The words need to be spoken. The advocacy needs to be put in place. Those steps 
of getting people along a path of development need to be put in place so that people understand I'm being sponsored. This organization cares about me and wants me to stay here. And it's interesting, Scott Westfall from Harvard Law School, he said, you know, if we actually looked at what people did well and then help them do what they do well even better versus looking at what they're not doing well and try to make improvements there, we'd get so much further. So the idea is, you know, we've got some great lawyers. Let's go ahead and build on that, right? Build on that strong base is a great point. Interesting. We often hear from women, women lawyers in firms, that they're more excited about business development today because very often they're seeing a woman on the other side of the table. They're seeing a woman in an in-house team because a lot of in-house departments have really grown with hiring women and minorities. And that has been a big part of it. As you talk to the law firms, as you meet with the law firms that you're partnered with, are you able to influence basically how you're working with those women? Women generally feel business development is uncomfortable. One of the goals we have at Left Foot is to make business development comfortable for people that are not extroverts and for people who aren't generally comfortable with business development. Any thoughts on that topic of women, business development, and the fact that they now have a woman possibly sitting across the table? Well, business development is a challenge for anybody. And it's a challenge because the way that the activity works, it will most often be unsuccessful. And that's something that people need to get their heads around and come to grips with. You know, whether it's a woman or a man doing the business development, chances are you're going to fail four out of five times. And and that's just the reality of being in a competition with a lot of other institutions. I think that that's one point that really bears emphasis. For women doing business development, I think it's really necessary to bring to the table the kinds of things that I talked about before. The clarity of communication, the understanding of the business, the understanding of the purpose of the assignment and the ability to really relate to the in-house lawyer conducting the interview to select the counsel. So the first point is to know your stuff. Bring something to the table that is a technical expertise that's required. Be able to talk about it in a very practical, down-to-earth way and using very common business communication and not a lot of jargon. And I think that that ought to put women on at least an equal footing with men as they do business development. Thank you for that response. You have a lot of energy about your work. Obviously, when you were describing the case, it was great to see see that energy and, and hear it in your voice as well. What do you enjoy most or what have you enjoyed most about the work that you've done in your law career generally? You correctly perceive the energy. I do enjoy being given an immense challenge and being given the opportunity to design a response to the challenge and to figure out how to get the client to a successful outcome. That's the substance that really makes engines burn hot. But I will say that the thing that I have enjoyed the most about my practice since I left Cleary Gottlieb in 2007 has been building teams. I really very much enjoy helping professionals learn that being an effective executive inside a corporation is so much more than being a superb legal analyst and a superb lawyer. It really entails developing many of these attributes that we've talked about, developing energy, developing motivation, teaching people to be inspired about the work that they're doing, teaching people to communicate clearly and to avoid the jargon, teaching people executive presence, how to 
be a compelling presence in the room, how to project confidence, how to inspire confidence, how to read the room in an emotionally intelligent way and stop the conversation when somebody across the table is starting to boil. All of these different talents, all these different attributes that you can create within people and then teach them not only how to incorporate those into their practice, but teach them how to teach it. The ability to create creators of leaders, that's really the most inspiring thing that you can get to do in a career. And it is, I'm sure, as you described, so different than in a law firm environment. I think it's great to know that for our listeners that are looking at in-house that there's another option. There's another option in a different environment, a different environment out there. Ricardo, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? Well, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. I really enjoy talking about the legal profession. I really enjoy talking about the challenges that we have in front of us and how we ought to be thinking about it. There are many things that are left to be done in order to improve the quality of our profession, improve the way that we deliver services to our clients, and really, you know, in the larger sense, improve the reputation that lawyers have in our society. We really do a wonderful, wonderful work on behalf of society. We are the advocates for justice in our society, and we really need to remember that that's the uniform that we want to wear. We want to wear the uniform of integrity. We want to be a profession that anybody would be proud to join, and we need to demonstrate that. It's all of these things that we've talked about, and it's also being responsible to our communities. It's about showing the generosity and and bigness of spirit that goes with having chosen law as your profession. Ricardo, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.